Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, today with a special Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, corona means halo, so let's find the silver lining in this outbreak. On Dr. Doctor, we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. While we're normally heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Please share it with a friend if you find it helpful. Today's special guest will be Deacon Dr. Bill Williams. He's a rheumatologist and a clinical researcher and a deacon in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. He's married to Lorraine and is a father of three children and has three granddaughters. He's a graduate of MIT, a small school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Tufts Medical School. He's board certified in internal medicine and rheumatology. He's worked in academic medicine and in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industries. He's currently an adjunct professor at the, of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and the president and CEO of Briacell Therapeutics Corporation. Deacon Dr. Bill, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Well, thank you very much, Tom. And I have to say, I always wanted to be on Dr. Doctor because my full name is William Williams. And so I think this is somehow appropriate. <laughs> That's great. So tonight we're going to talk about, um, you know, coming up with testing for a virus like coronavirus, uh, especially looking through drugs that might help treat this, and maybe even a little bit on vaccines. So, Bill, you have worked in a lab that practiced good licensing practice. What does that mean, and what does it have to do with work in the midst of a pandemic? So good laboratory practice is very important for validating any new um, assays that are developed to measure any kind of good laboratory practice. Yeah, for any kind of um, any kind of laboratory uh, parameter that you're trying to investigate. So let's say that you have a new test for coronavirus, and you therefore want to sell it really quick because you can make a lot of money. Well, how do you know how sensitive it is? Maybe you're missing some cases that you should be picking up. Or how do you know how specific it is? How do you know that you're not getting cross-reactivity with some other virus that doesn't cause any bad disease? I mean, those things are very important to figure out so you can give people accurate information. And that's why it's important to follow GLP procedures because they assure the sensitivity and specificity of the assay are up to snuff. Now, there was something that didn't quite go right when the CDC tried to develop an assay for coronavirus. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that what happened, and I did not follow this very closely, so I apologize, but uh, I believe what happened is that there was a decision point early on whether or not to limit testing to CDC um, validated or CDC approved uh, assays or to just open it up to the public sec sector and let anybody who had a validated assay uh, be able to run them. And they decided to be more stringent to go with the CDC uh, controlled assays basically. And because of that, uh, things did not progress as rapidly as they should have. Now you've got numerous small companies uh, and large companies jumping into this and providing the assays much more rapidly. So we're, there's a lot of catch up to do, but we're getting there. Do you have any idea how well we are doing on getting tests available? 
So what I've heard, and this is only what I hear on TV and through interviews of the Surgeon General and people like that, where you know there's 10 times more tests being done today than seven days ago. But on the other hand, there's still we're still probably only a third of the way there to where we need to be. So it's okay. still a work in progress. Now, something that I know you're familiar with is you know drug development or or other treatment development, and there's been a lot in the news about potential drugs to treat COVID patients. The first one I want to start with is uh, something, a simpler study I read that the World Health Organization is promoting, and that's a trial with four different arms using uh, various drugs, uh, uh, something that was developed for Ebola virus, something that's been used in connective tissue diseases, and, and some HIV drugs. Can you tell us what you know about this study? So I don't, I'm not familiar with the study itself. I am familiar with the drugs that they're looking at. Um, the coronavirus is a uh, what's called a negative strand RNA virus. In other words, its DNA is not DNA. It's actually RNA. The way our cells normally work is that our genome, the genes in our bodies, are actually uh, DNA molecules. And those DNA molecules are transcribed uh, into RNA, just the way you might transcribe by, by writing uh, a copy of a book. They're transcribed into this RNA, which basically mirrors the DNA sequence. And then your ribosomes, this little manufacturing plant inside your cells, <laughs> read the blueprint of the RNA and make proteins out of that. So the way this virus works is that its genome, the genes of this virus, are carried on what's called the negative strand RNA molecule. And that RNA molecule has to be replicated to a positive strand RNA to start making the proteins because then the virus takes over the host cell machinery to make the proteins. And so because the virus that, doesn't really have its own machinery, that's why it has to almost be a parasite on our cells, correct? Exactly. Viruses are cellular parasites. It's a very good way of looking at it. They cannot replicate, they can't reproduce themselves on their own. So what this particular virus has is what's called RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. And that enzyme is the one that starts to replicate the RNA genome of the virus, so to, so to make more copies of it, and to get those over to the ribosomes where they're made into the viral proteins. Now, that enzyme is not an enzyme that our normal cells have. So therefore, it's a good target for drugs to block that enzyme and therefore block the virus. Because it and, won't hurt uh, our cells at all or shouldn't hurt our cells. It shouldn't. It sh shouldn't is a better word. I mean, I think <laughs> if you look at the history of similar uh, advances, for example, with HIV research, uh, some of the early re reverse transcriptase inhibitors that came out, which inhibit a very similar enzyme in the HIV virus, those early drugs did actually have a lot of toxicities because of what's called off-target effects. So they weren't just inhibiting the viral enzyme. They were also playing havoc with other things and other normal cellular processes. So one of the arms of this study that you described is using, I believe, remdesivir, and Correct. that is an inhibitor of this RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, and therefore is a very promising targeted therapy. But it's early stage. We don't know yet 
how safe that is. And so that's one of the things that they'll be looking at very closely. One of the other drugs that they're using is hydroxychloroquine. And that's a drug I'm very familiar with because my uh, clinical training is in rheumatology. And hydroxychloroquine is a derivative of chloroquine, chloroquine which was originally an anti-malarial agent. But it's and, a bit and just to be clear, possible. malaria is a parasite, a multicellular organism, much, much larger than a virus, correct? Right. I believe malaria is a single cellular parasite. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. But You're it's right. much, much bigger than a virus. Yeah, yes. much, much bigger than a virus. Absolutely. And so hydroxychloroquine, I'm actually not quite sure how it works in malaria, to be honest. I know that it does work in inflammatory diseases because uh, it's used to treat both rheumatoid arthritis and systemic lupus, where it can be in some cases very effective in calming down inflammation. Now that's important for COVID because the COVID-19 um, syndrome can produce what's called a cytokine storm. And that's when your immune system becomes hyperactivated and makes all these um, small messenger molecules called cytokines. It's kind of similar to hormones, but they're, they're proteins and not small molecules. So they're called cytokines. And these cytokines can really rev up your immune system to get going and a little bit too active. And then you can get high fever. You can get uh, fluid coming into the lungs and it can just, you know, drop your blood pressure and, you know, it can be very, very serious. So, Bill, so, would you say that this is the body almost overreacting to the virus such that it's attacking the virus so much it's actually hurting other parts of the body? Right. That's exactly what's happening uh, with, with things like uh, um, cytokine, cytokine storm. storm. Yep. Yeah. But uh, what you also have, then in the case of hydroxychloroquine, is a way of down-regulating that a bit. So you don't have the severe, um, you know, effects of this uh, cytokine storm that's happening. It's anti-inflammatory anti approach. And it's, it's often coupled with azithromycin, which is a simple antibiotic. I think everybody, probably uh, one of your listeners has either had or has heard of a Z-Pack. Yes. You know, a Z-Pack is what you take when you get a sore throat or a sinus infection. And um, Z-Pax, it's a very uh, effective antibiotic, azithromycin. Uh, and that's, I believe, the main role of that is to um, prevent bacterial infections from jumping in on top of the viral infection. Ah, uh, okay. Right. And then I think the other arms of that study, you mentioned some HIV drugs. There's the two of them, yes. Yeah, and, and those, I believe, are both protease inhibitors. Uh, let me see if I can find on my notes here. So you've got, um, right, you've, you, uh, the nucleus, here we go. So you've got, uh, right, um, lopinavir and ritonavir are both protease inhibitors. Now, one of the things that viruses do, viruses are very, very thrifty in the way that they uh, make proteins. Uh, because they have to be. They don't have a lot of genetic material to encode lots of different proteins. So what they tend to do, and this is true in both HIV and in coronavirus, is that they'll make one big protein, and then they have an enzyme called a protease that will cut it 
into a couple of different uh, proteins. Ah, yes. Okay. So that's what, that's what a protease does. And these two drugs, lapinavir and ritonavir, are responsible for cutting up, to P, uh, for inhibiting the protease in the HIV virus, uh, human immunodeficiency virus, that, that um, forms the surface proteins, cuts the two surface proteins apart from one big protein called GP160 into two smaller proteins called GP120 and GP41. Now, coronavirus has a similar protease, and it's felt that these drugs may be effective in inhibiting that protease as well. Is there any evidence outside of test tubes that these medicines could be effective in either animals or humans? I don't even know if there is an animal model for this disease. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I haven't had had uh, time to deeply research that, uh, but, I, but I do know that there are mouse coronavirus um, systems. It's, I'm sure it's a different coronavirus than the one that infects us, uh, so it, it can't be 100% translated from one to the other. But most of these drugs have been tested primarily in the test tube in vitro, and so they do have some you know, effect there. We, we clearly know that. Uh, there's also been some clinical studies, but unfortunately, they're not either not well controlled or the data is not published. I mean, I was particularly interested when I heard that hydroxychloroquine could be used potentially to treat this disease because it's a drug that's been around for many decades. It's been used to treat, I'm sure, millions of patients. It has a great safety track record. And so there's really very little harm done and using it in patients. But then when I went to look and see what the clinical data was, really what you had was that some of the uh, Chinese scientists in uh, the Wuhan province uh, claimed to have done a controlled study where they used hydroxychloroquine in some patients and not in others. And in the patients who, where they used it, they did better. But what is completely unclear and is not published and is not available anywhere is what their data actually is. All we have is their claim that it worked better. Now, there are some other studies that are starting to be done that are early phase that are giving some promising results, but most of these are uncontrolled. So you can't 100% be sure that you're not just uh, encountering patients who have less severe disease or a more uh, suitable immune system to combat the virus. So there's still a lot of unknowns with these, but clearly with things like uh, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, where the track record is great for safety, then there's really no issue I see in using them in, you know, in, in many, many patients. And then the other ones we need to look at a little bit more, more carefully. So in other words, if you had uh, COVID pneumonia, and you were on a ventilator, you would probably not object to being treated with hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin. Right. I would hope that I would have been treated with them far before, before that. I got to the stage when I was on a ventilator. And um, there was an interview uh, last night that I was listening to of an infectious disease specialist in Louisiana, I believe. And uh, she was mentioning that the consensus is that in patients who have no symptoms, that they should just be monitored. 
but if they either have mild symptoms or more severe symptoms, or they've progressed all the way on to, to a coronavirus pneumonia, that those all should be treated with hydroxychloroquine and perhaps also with azithromycin. So, you know, those patients clearly all need to be treated. That is a wonderful insight, very practical information, information, Bill. But yet I've heard reports that people are hoarding hydroxychloroquine. How does that even happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I knew the answer to that. I, I, I don't honestly know um, how that could be. I mean, it, it, it may simply just be the uh, greed factor that's so prevalent in the human condition, unfortunately, that when you have any kind of situation where you can make a buck um, that, you know, people who have access to these drugs would then um, hoard them and potentially sell them and make money off of them, which is uh, unconscionable to me. Uh, And for our listeners, Bill was also a longtime, the longtime uh, editor of the Lineker Quarterly Journal, which is the official medical journal of the Catholic Medical Association, the oldest medical ethics journal in the United States, starting in December 1932. So, Bill, what sources are you trusting during the COVID epidemic? Because, you know, these last three, four years, we've heard a lot about fake news. How do you know what to trust? So I think the best source of information in terms of the magnitude of the epidemic is the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and their website. Um, I've actually been going on there every day and, uh, you know, plotting out the number of new cases and making my own graphs and looking at things and looking for trends. And so that's, that's one thing you can clearly trust. And interestingly, there was also a pretty good uh, Wikipedia page on this. Uh, that has oh. updated information each day with the number of cases, total number of cases, total number of deaths, um, and those kinds of things. So that's um, not, Wikipedia is not always reliable, but I'm uh, hopeful in, in this case that it is. Um, but clearly the CDC. And then for drug information, I would um, you know su- suggest trying the FDA uh, website. They uh, have some um, resources there. Or at least That's I think good. they do. I haven't looked real closely. <laughs> and mostly I've been looking in the medical literature, you know, myself. But, yeah. Like, the, I mean, there are some early articles published without peer review yet because they're trying to get them out so rapidly. Right. right. So, so, Bill, I saw an article today, and I sent you a link to it, and it said that 69 drugs have been identified to test for effectiveness. How could they figure that out? So it's through a a number of different ways. And um, I actually went through and tried to find as many different drugs out there that are uh, potentially useful, that are thought to be useful. And, uh, you know, people have used what's called a bioinformatic approach to this, where they um, can basically use the uh, computer algorithms to look for uh, drug mechanisms of action that should work in this case. And I think that there's, uh, I think I have uh, four or five different categories of drugs wow. that are being looked at right now. Uh, Tell us more. Of, we, yeah, one of what we call nucleoside analogs. And, you know, remdesivir, which we talked about earlier, is yes. in that category. These are the drugs that should block 
the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. And there's a number of them out there that may work. For example, there's an uh, influenza drug called um, favipavir that's already approved for inf influenza that inhibits the same enzyme in influenza. Influenza works basically the same way as coronavirus. Uh, there's also baloxiv uh, sorry, baloxivir. Uh, ribavirin is a potential. Uh, wow. It's a hepatitis C drug yes. that may have activity. And then there's one called uh, galadesivir. And so these, these are all, <coughs> that was also originally developed for HCV uh, or he hepatitis C. Uh, yes. And that's in early stage trials. Then there's the protease inhibitors. We already mentioned lipinavir and ritonavir. Uh, yes. But also, and I, I was surprised by this, disulfuram, which is an approved drug to treat alcohol dependence, has yes. been reported to inhibit some of the proteases of, um, of these coronavirus strains. So that, I'm, I'm assuming, is going to be tried pretty soon somewhere. But that's that, amazing. It's it's really heartening to know that we've got some drugs out there that we don't have to develop, but that we just have to to test. I mean that that saves right. years, doesn't it? To repurpose them, absolutely. I mean to have things that you can just repurpose. I think that was the goal of this bioinformatic search was to find drugs that are out there already that could be helpful. Bill, how does a bioinformatic search work? Ah, uh, well, that's you know that, that there you Magic, get right? my head. <laughs> Okay, I know I know how to read the results of them, but in terms of how you actually do the screening and the uh, computer programming and the algorithms, that's not that's not my uh, area of expertise. Is it based on the RNA sequence or the proteins that it codes for? No, I think it's probably based mostly on mechanisms of action and knowing you know the different ways that the virus um, life cycle works. You can look at all the different steps in the virus life cycle, and then you could run a search and say, okay, is there anything that would inhibit this step or anything ah. that would inhibit that step? I think that's more what they're doing. So, Okay, just, so you've talked about nucleoside analogs. Secondly, right. protease inhibitors. What do we have next? So the next thing, and this is a big category, are the anti-inflammatory approaches. And um, we mentioned the cytokine storm. There's also... A syndrome, and I hope I can actually pronounce this one: hemophagous <laughs> lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH. I'm not sure if you've ever run into a case of that. I've seen a few in my career. I've seen it under a, the microscope. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's where the term comes from because it's a, a microscopic description. But it can happen with different viral infections, and it causes exactly what we see in the um, late stages of very serious coronavirus infection, including high unremitting fever, low blood counts, high levels of a protein called ferritin in the blood, that's an iron-containing protein, yes. and then you get uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and yes. that's very similar to what we see happening with the severe COVID-19 disease. I actually so, know a priest who died of hemophagocytic lymphohistocytosis. Oh, well, may he it's be a nasty disease. for us. May he yeah, be interesting uh, for us. Yes, yeah. Father Nicholas, yes. Yes. So I think it's been very interesting. They've gone back and looked at other drugs that may work to either block inflammation 
uh, or to somehow block the virus. And so there's a few that are out there uh, that are being, you know, that could be looked at. One is called anakinra. Anakinra was a drug originally developed for rheumatoid arthritis, but now it's used more in other um, diseases. But it appears to block uh, a cytokine called interleukin-1. So that's something that may be helpful. There's also a drug that I used quite a bit for rheumatoid arthritis called tocilizumab. That blocks another cytokine called interleukin-6. And interleukin-6 is the uh, cytokine that actually causes fever. Whenever we get a fever, usually IL-6 levels are very high. And oh, that's okay. that drives the fever. Then there's another molecule that's actually near and dear to my heart called <laughs> granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor. I've been studying this particular molecule for over 30 years because it's linked to the development of rheumatoid arthritis. But it also can boost effectiveness of vaccines, which is partly what I do at uh, Briacel. Uh, so GMCSF, there are now antibodies to GMCSF. And there are, uh, they've, been, they've been in very late stage clinical development for rheumatoid arthritis. And now there's two of them that are being looked at to treat this cytokine storm syndrome in uh, the COVID, uh, you know, uh, disease. Yes. And then another drug that is even nearer and dearer to my heart <laughs> called baricitinib. Now, baricitinib inhibits an enzyme called Janus kinases. Janus kinases uh, mediate signal transduction from cytokines. So the way cytokines work and the way most of these um, intercellular messengers work is that they have uh, a receptor, in other words, a protein on the surface of the cell that they fit into like a key into a lock. And yes. when that key turns the lock, there's a whole set of kind of gears that get uh, activated within the cell, the cellular machinery to transmit the signal into the cell and to tell the cell to change what it's doing and to do something different. And when you have inflammation, you have a lot of cytokines that bind to their receptors and they mediate their intracellular inside the cell signaling through these Janus kinase enzymes. And so there's actually a hypothesis paper that these JAK inhibitors and specifically one called baricitinib may have two effects. One is to block the inflammation and the other is actually to block, they believe through molecular modeling, uh, blocking cellular viral entry in, in the COVID-19 syndrome. And then of course- so the virus for, can't uh, into the cells that they, where they want to use their machinery. I'm sorry? Does that mean that they would block the virus from getting into the cells that they want to hijack to use their machinery to make more copies of themselves? No, no, no. What they're doing is it's slowing down. Well, no, you're right. I'm sorry. I apologize. The cellular viral entry part, you're absolutely right. That is partly what the baricitinib could be doing. Okay. And, and then there's one other I just read about today, uh, which I think is fascinating. So um, the coronavirus attaches to cells to infect them through a receptor called the angiotensin II converting enzyme receptor number two. And we've talked about that in two of our episodes, so our listeners should be familiar with that. That's, that's great. But there's also a co-receptor apparently called CD147. 
And there are people developing a monoclonal antibody called meplazumab, which is an anti-CD147. And I just read today a paper where they studied this already in 17, I believe, um, uh, severe uh, respiratory distress syndrome patients uh, who were infected with the coronavirus. And they noted that those treated compared to people who weren't treated uh, had earlier discharge, decreased case severity, and uh, they had a much shorter time to becoming negative, culturing negative for the virus. So it's a very small study, 17 patients, but very, very promising. Uh, so I think that there's there's a lot that is going on here that can be uh, very, very helpful. So you've covered three categories of drugs, the nucleoside analogs, the protease inhibitors, anti-inflammatory. Are there any more? Uh, well, actually, the host targeted ones is the fourth category, and that includes the anti-CD147 antibody I just mentioned, meplazomate. Okay. And there's a couple of others that appear to perhaps uh, work somewhat in that way, uh, such as something called uh, nit- I, I am sorry, <laughs> sorry, excuse me for this one, nitrazozanide. That's the best I can do, which is approved for treatment of diarrhea and shows in vitro activity against COVID. Um, so there's a few out there that may be, may be helpful in this area. So what can, you know, the average person expect to see in terms of when these drugs could actually make a difference in people's lives? Well, I think in terms of the uh, hydroxychloroquine and, uh, um, and the uh, azithromycin, that's already being done. So that can make a difference now if, in fact, they do work. And again, the, the problem is that we don't really have firm data uh, in a, any kind of a controlled study to show that patients treated with those do better than patients who have not been treated with them. But from so, what Bill, heard, what's the ethical um, way of figuring that out during a pandemic? I think probably the ethical way to do it is to compare it to historical controls. Uh, and that's really what I'm sure people are looking at very closely, even as we speak, because many, many patients are now being treated with those drugs. And so we can compare their clinical course to patients who did not have access to those drugs before we knew that they might have an effect. I'm not, I don't think that there's another way to do that right now um, that would be ethical. Are there dangers of moving ahead too fast with some of these drugs? Always. There's always dangers in drug development. And that's why typically you have to go through three phases of drug development before you can uh, prove that a drug is safe and effective. Phase one is very early safety data. Phase two is when you start to show that it is working, that it has efficacy in making the disease better. And phase three is when you actually prove that it's both safe and effective. Well, these drugs are basically being tried, many of these early uh, stage drugs Uh, are really in phase one or phase two, early phase two development. So we don't really know their safety profile. And there have been instances uh, in the history of drug development and more than just a few where people really expected a drug to work great. And in fact, it ended up making a disease worse. 
So it's really important to look at the data very, very carefully. Um, and, you know, when you have a highly safe drug that has very little reason to believe it's going to harm, like hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, then I think that you're justified in going forward. But for the other ones, you really need to look and make sure that you're not causing some other problem. So how do you establish a reasonable risk-benefit ratio in the midst of a pandemic for trying some of these other drugs besides the hydroxychloroquine and the azithromycin? I, I really think that this is going to be driven uh, not so much based on how you would like to do it, as much as based on supply. So a number of these drugs are very early stage and they haven't ramped up production yet necessarily to have it be available for thousands of patients. So for example, remdesivir, that looks very, very promising, but it's only in early phase studies. So do they have you know tens of thousands of patients worth of doses available? I'm not sure. Um, if they did, I'm sure that it would be out there very quickly and it would be compared, you know, to other drugs. So the multi-armed WHO study that you mentioned is probably the most ethical way to go about this, where everybody gets some kind of treatment and therefore, you know, you're not um, shorting anybody the chance of having a life-saving treatment, even though you're not sure yet which one is going to be the best. And then you just have to look at your data as the study is going along, which in a normal controlled clinical trial is a no-no. Usually what you do is you say, okay, we're going to treat a thousand patients with our drug and a thousand patients with placebo. And after the treatment's all done, then we're going to unblind ourselves because typically you do that with nobody knowing who's on the drug and who's on the placebo, right. except the statistician who's you know locked in the closet somewhere. And that's the double-blind um, study. Exactly. You know, the statistician knows, but he's not telling anybody. Uh, and he's not locked in the closet. I don't want to get the statisticians mad at me here. Well, most of them uh, are, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, and then you unblind the study at the end, and then you know if it worked or not. Well, in this case, you can't really afford to do that. So you have to have, you know, um, an open label but randomized study where people know what they're getting but you then just follow them to see how they do, and that's the best you can do. So, Bill, are you available? Available? Aware of what's going on with vaccine development and the kind of timeline that requires? Yeah. So, uh, COVID uh, vaccines are uh, very rapidly being developed. Um, there is one company that I know of uh, that, literally, from the moment they had the, the, the um, sequence of the virus, which was published, I think, you know, in January. I think within a week, they had their vaccine already in production because they do- How can that happen? Well, because oh, they, they, they develop DNA vaccines. So they don't even need to make the protein. They just make the DNA and inject it into the patient and the patient's cells take up the DNA and make the protein. So it's a very, uh, you know, rapid way you can develop vaccines. But then many other people have developed more traditional protein-based vaccines. And those are just starting to be tested now, as you know. The, right. March 16th was the first injection I read. That's right. That was the first dose for the first patient. And 
But the problem is it typically takes about a year and a half to Correct. do the clinical development for a vaccine because typically you do phase one to show that it's safe. And then you do phase two to show that you're getting some effectiveness. And then you do your big phase three study to prove that it works. And that all takes time. And uh, what you use in phase two is you use um, uh, what's called antibody. You, you look for neutralizing antibodies. In other words, does the vaccine stimulate your immune system to make antibodies that will block the virus from infecting cells? So that's called the neutralizing antibody. And that's something that you can measure relatively rapidly. Uh, and you can do that in phase one and phase two of a vaccine study. Uh, the problem is you don't know for sure that that's going to really protect people or how well it's going to protect people from the infection. Uh, so, you know, you have to really get out there and try it in patients who are at risk for getting infected before you know. And that's a large, costly, and usually uh, time-consuming study. What they, uh, what they, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I understand that coronavirus is similar to influenza virus in that it mutates quickly and would probably require vaccines to be remade or updated every year, unlike things like mumps, measles, and rubella that we don't update. Right. Yeah, I believe that's the case. Again, I'm not a virologist, so I'm not an expert in that part of things. What are some of the other ethical issues we need to consider with development of new drugs and vaccines, Bill? Well, I think, uh, you know, there's always uh, one concern with vaccines that some of them are manufactured on cell lines that were derived from um, elective abortions uh, back in the day. Uh, now, these, if there is no alternative, uh, you know, these uh, should be used because if the vaccine is effective, then you certainly would want to protect people, uh, regardless of the source of the cells that the vaccine is grown in. Uh, but on the other hand, there are some people doing very good work now, for example, for example at the uh, John Paul II Medical Research Institute, uh, where they're developing cell lines that will work the same way that we're, that don't have that issue. Um, and so hopefully those will get out there at some point. Um, but believe me, if they develop a vaccine for coronavirus and, um, you know, it's unfortunately made with one of those cell lines, I still think it would be uh, extremely ethically advisable to use it um, because there is no alternative and we have to protect uh, our health. Uh, so, but, you know, hopefully there will be alternatives or perhaps the vaccines that will be developed will be what are called recombinant protein vaccines, which are typically made in bacteria or yeast or some other mammalian cell um, that, you know, can produce them. And we won't have those kind of issues. Do we have but any evidence right now they're using the aborted cell lines to develop any of these? I, I don't know that. I don't know. Right. That I don't either. Yeah, okay. that was so inside those particular companies. Yeah. It's hypothetical. Bill, there's a quote I ran um, across today. I read, want to read the first part of it and see what this sounds like to you. It's a quote from uh, the man, Michael Levitt, who was Secretary of Health and Human Services back in 2007. And he said, everything we do before a pandemic 
will seem alarmist. Everything we do after a pandemic will seem inadequate. What do you think about the, the wisdom of that? Yeah, I think that it is very wise. Um, I think that the um, steps that are being taken uh, have fortunately been reasonably effective. Uh, the testing uh, issue has clearly been a problem in terms of rolling out enough tests to, you know, uh, identify all the potential people who were infected. Um, but even if we identified them, we can't do what they did in South Korea, where they basically uh, tested everybody and then put trackers on their cell phones so that if somebody who was infected went outside, the police went and got them and dragged them back inside. Uh, you know, wow. So, it's not I don't our think culture. Do that here. Um, so, but it's but it's also true, and you know everything that you do afterwards will seem inadequate because you'll wish you did more. And uh, yes. you know, I think we have to keep in mind. I believe that in the U.S., there's been about 600 um, mortalities so far, and um, worldwide, I think it's about uh, above 400,000 now. Uh, so it's not mortality. Yeah. No, I'm 4,000 cases, right? And the mortality Final thing. is about is about 10,000. So we have to remember 18,000 deaths worldwide right now. You know, we have to remember going back to the influenza pandemic or epidemic in 1917 and 18. That killed 40 to 50 million worldwide. So we're not anywhere close to that. Yes. Yeah, Bill, what final comments would you like to leave with our listeners? So I think that it's very important for people to follow public, uh, your local public healthy health uh, safety rules. If they're telling you, if you're in New York City, for example, right now, which is the focus in the U.S. right now uh, of, the, of the pandemic, and they're telling you to shelter in place, shelter in place. Uh, the Surgeon General had a great comment that I would like to repeat. Pretend you're infected. Act like you're infected and protect other people uh, by just being very mindful of if you are not in a place where, you where you're at least allowed to go outside and go to the grocery store, stay six feet away. Don't sneeze on anybody. Don't let anybody sneeze on you, you know, and just be, be careful. The virus can hang around on surfaces for quite a while, although... We are not sure if that's a mode of transmission, uh, but just be, you know, take the precautions that they're advising us to take. And then if you do get sick, go get tested, you know, and, you know, call, keep in touch with your doctor. Telemedicine is making a real jump in this pandemic. Deacon Dr. Bill Williams, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Thank you for all our listeners for being with us for another episode on the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. This is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. 
get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.